Chapter Eighteen of the Spirit of the Border by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leonard Wilson. Chapter Eighteen. The sight which Joe had seen horrified him for several moments into helpless inaction. He lay breathing heavily, impotent in an awful rage. As he remained there, stunned by the shock, he gazed up through the open space in the leaves, trying to still his fury, to realize the situation, to make no hasty move. The soft blue of the sky, the fleecy clouds drifting eastward, the fluttering leaves and the twittering birds, all assured him he was wide awake. He had found Gertie's den, where so many white women had been hidden, to see friends and home no more. He had seen the renegade sleeping, calmly sleeping, like any other man. How could the wretch sleep? He had seen Kate. It had been the sight of her that had paralyzed him. To make a certainty of his fears, he again raised himself to peep into the hole. As he did so, a faint cry came from within. Gertie lay on a buffalo robe near a barred door. Behind him sat Kate, huddled in one corner of the cabin. A long buckskin thong was knotted around her waist and tied to a log. Her hair was matted and tangled, and on her face and arms were many discolored bruises. Worse still, in her plaintive moaning, in the meaningless movement of her head, in her vacant expression, was proof that her mind had gone. She was mad. Even as an agonizing pity came over Joe, to be followed by the surging fire of rage blazing up in his breast, he could not but thank God that she was mad. It was merciful that Kate was no longer conscious of her suffering. Like leaves in a storm wavered Joe's hands as he clenched them until the nails brought blood. "'Be calm, be cool,' whispered his monitor Wetzel ever with him in spirit. But God, could he be cool? Bounding with lion spring, he hurled his heavy frame against the door. Crash! The door was burst from its fastenings. Gertie leaped up with startled yell, drawing his knife as he rose. It had not time to descend before Joe's second spring, more fierce even than the other, carried him directly on top of the renegade. As the two went down, Joe caught the villain's wrist with a grip that literally cracked the bones. The knife fell and rolled away from the struggling men. For an instant they tumbled about on the floor, clasped in a crushing embrace. The renegade was strong, supple, slippery as an eel. Twice he wriggled from his foe. Gnashing his teeth, he fought like a hyena. He was fighting for life, life which is never so dear as to a coward and a murderer. Doom glared from Joe's big eyes, and scream after scream issued from the renegade's white lips. Terrible was this struggle, but brief. Joe seemingly had the strength of ten men. Twice he pulled Gertie down, as a wolf drags a deer. He dashed him against the wall, throwing him nearer and nearer the knife. Once within reach of the blade, Joe struck the renegade a severe blow on the temple, and the villain's wrestling became weaker. Planting his heavy knee on Gertie's breast, Joe reached for the knife and swung it high. Exultantly he cried, mad with lust, for the brute's blood. But the slight delay 
saved Gertie's life. The knife was knocked from Joe's hand, and he leaped erect to find himself confronted by Silvertip. The chief held a tomahawk with which he had struck the weapon from the young man's grasp, and to judge from his burning eyes and malignant smile, he meant to brain the now defenseless pale-face. In a single fleeting instant Joe saw that Gertie was helpless for the moment, that Silvertip was confident of his revenge, and that the situation called for Wetzel's characteristic advice, act like lightning. Swifter than the thought was the leap he made past Silvertip. It carried him to a wooden bar which lay on the floor. Escape was easy, for the door was before him and the Shawnee behind. But Joe did not flee. He seized the bar and rushed at the Indian. Then began a duel in which the savage's quickness and cunning matched the white man's strength and fury. Silvertip dodged the vicious swings Joe aimed at him. He parried many blows, any one of which would have crushed his skull. Nimble as a cat, he avoided every rush, while his dark eyes watched for an opening. He fought wholly on the defensive, craftily reserving his strength until his opponent should tire. At last, catching the bar on his hatchet, he broke the force of the blow, and then with agile movement dropped to the ground and grappled Joe's legs. Long before this he had drawn his knife, and now he used it, plunging the blade into the young man's side. Cunning and successful as was the savage's ruse, it failed signally, for to get hold of the Shawnee was all Joe wanted. Feeling the sharp pain as they fell together, he reached his hand behind him and caught Silvertip's wrist. Exerting all his power, he wrenched the Indian's arm so that it was not only dislocated, but the bones cracked. Silvertip saw his fatal mistake, but he uttered no sound. Crippled though he was, he yet made a supreme effort, but it was as if he had been in the hands of a giant. The lad handled him with remorseless and resistless fury. Suddenly he grasped the knife, which Silvertip had been unable to hold with his crippled hand, and thrust it deeply into the Indian's side. All Silvertip's muscles relaxed, as if a strong tension had been removed. Slowly his legs straightened, his arms dropped, and from his side gushed a dark flood. A shadow crept over his face, not dark nor white, but just a shadow. His eyes lost their hate. They no longer saw the foe. They looked beyond with gloomy question, and then were fixed cold in death. Silvertip died as he had lived, a chief. Joe glared round for Gertie. He was gone, having slipped away during the fight. The lad turned to release the poor prisoner, when he started back with a cry of fear. Kate lay bathed in a pool of blood, dead. The renegade, fearing she might be rescued, had murdered her, and then fled from the cabin. Almost blinded by horror and staggering with weakness, Joe turned to leave the cabin. Realizing that he was seriously, perhaps dangerously, wounded, he wisely thought he must not leave the place without weapons. He had marked the pegs where the renegade's rifle hung, and had been careful to keep between that and his enemies. He took down the gun and horns which were attached to it, and with one last shuddering glance at poor Kate left the place. He was conscious of a queer lightness in his head, but he suffered no pain. His garments were dripping with blood. He did not know how much of it was his or the Indian's. Instinct, rather than sight, was his guide. He grew weaker and weaker. 
his head began to whirl yet he kept on knowing that life and freedom were his if he found whispering winds he gained the top of the ridge his eyes were blurred his strength gone he called aloud and then plunged forward on his face he heard dimly as though the sound were far off the whine of a dog he felt something soft and wet on his face then consciousness left him when he regained his senses he was lying on a bed of ferns under a projecting rock he heard the gurgle of running water mingling with the song of birds near him lay mose and beyond rose a wall of green thicket neither whispering winds nor his horse was visible he felt a dreamy lassitude he was tired but had no pain finding he could move without difficulty he concluded his weakness was more from loss of blood than a dangerous wound he put his hand on the place where he had been stabbed and felt a soft warm compress such as might have been made by a bunch of wet leaves someone had unlaced his hunting shirt for he saw the strings were not as he usually tied them and had dressed the wound joe decided after some deliberation that whispering winds had found him made him as comfortable as possible and leaving mose on guard had gone out to hunt for food or perhaps back to the indian encampment the rifle and horns he had taken from gertie's hut together with silvertip's knife lay beside him as joe lay there hoping for whispering wind's return his reflections were not pleasant fortunate indeed he was to be alive but he had no hope he could continue to be favored by fortune odds were now against his escape gertie would have the delawares on his trail like a pack of hungry wolves he could not understand the absence of whispering winds she would have died sooner than desert him gertie had perhaps captured her and was now scouring the woods for him i'll get him next time or he'll get me muttered joe in bitter wrath he could never forgive himself for his failure to kill the renegade the recollection of how nearly he had forever ended gertie's brutal career brought before joe's mind the scene of the fight he saw again buzzard jim's face revolting unlike anything human there stretched silvertip's dark figure lying still and stark and there was kate's white form in its winding crimson wreath of blood hauntingly her face returned sad stern in its cold rigidity poor girl better for her to be dead he murmured not long will she be unavenged his thoughts drifted to the future he had no fear of starvation for mose could catch a rabbit or woodchuck at any time when the strips of meat he had hidden in his coat were gone he could start a fire and roast more what concerned him most was pursuit his trail from the cabin had been a bloody one which would render it easily followed he dared not risk exertion until he had given his wound time to heal then if he did escape from gertie and the delawares his future was not bright his experiences of the last few days had not only sobered but brought home to him this real border life with all his fire and daring he knew he was no fool he had eagerly embraced a career which at the present stage of his training was beyond his scope 
not that he did not know how to act in sudden crises, but because he had not had the necessary practice to quickly and surely use his knowledge. Bitter indeed was his self-scorn when he recalled that of the several critical positions he had been in since his acquaintance with Wetzel, he had failed in all but one. The exception was the killing of Silvertip. Here his fury had made him fight as Wetzel fought with only his everyday incentive. He realized that the border was no place for any save the boldest and most experienced hunters, men who had become inured to hardship, callous as to death, keen as Indians. Fear was not in Joe, nor lack of confidence. But he had good sense, and realized he would have done a wiser thing had he stayed at Fort Henry. Colonel Zane was right. The Indians were tigers, the renegades vultures, the vast untrammeled forests and plains their covert. Ten years of war had rendered this wilderness a place where those few white men who had survived were hardened to the spilling of blood, stern even in those few quiet hours which peril allowed them, strong in their sacrifice of all for future generations. A low growl from Mose broke into Joe's reflections. The dog had raised his nose from his paws and sniffed suspiciously at the air. The lad heard a slight rustling outside, and in another moment was overjoyed at seeing whispering winds. She came swiftly, with a lithe, graceful motion, and flying to him like a rush of wind, knelt beside him. She kissed him and murmured words of endearment. Winds, where have you been? he asked her, in the mixed English and Indian dialect in which they conversed. She told him the dog had led her to him two evenings before. He was insensible. She had bathed and bandaged his wound, and remained with him all that night. The next day, finding he was ill and delirious, she decided to risk returning to the village. If any questions arose, she could say he had left her. Then she would find a way to get back to him, bringing healing herbs for his wound and a soothing drink. As it turned out, Gertie had returned to the camp. He was battered and bruised, and in a white heat of passion. Going at once to Wingenund, the renegade openly accused Whispering Winds of aiding her pale-faced lover to escape. Wingenund called his daughter before him, and questioned her. She confessed all to her father. "'Why is the daughter of Wingenund the traitor to her race?' demanded the chief. "'Whispering Winds is a Christian.' Wingenund received this intelligence as a blow. He dismissed Gertie and sent his braves from his lodge, facing his daughter alone. Gloomy and stern, he paced before her. Wingenund's blood might change, but would never betray. Wingenund is the Delaware chief, he said. Go, darken no more the door of Wingenund's wigwam. Let the flower of the Delawares fade in alien pastures. Go, whispering winds is free tears shone brightly in the indian girl's eyes while she told joe her story she loved her father and she would see him no more winds is free she whispered when strength returns to her master she can follow him to the white villages winds will live her life for him then we have no one to fear asked joe no red man now that the Shawnee chief is dead. 
Will Gertie follow us? He is a coward. He will fear to come alone. The white savage is a snake in the grass. Two long days followed, during which the lovers lay quietly in hiding. On the morning of the third day, Joe felt that he might risk the start for the village of peace. Whispering winds led the horse below a stone upon which the invalid stood, thus enabling him to mount. Then she got on behind him. The sun was just gilding the horizon when they rode out of the woods into a wide plain. No living thing could be seen. Along the edge of the forest the ground was level, and the horse traveled easily. Several times during the morning Joe dismounted beside a pile of stones or a fallen tree. The miles were traversed without serious inconvenience to the invalid, except that he grew tired. Toward the middle of the afternoon, when they had ridden perhaps twenty-five miles, they crossed a swift, narrow brook. The water was a beautiful, clear brown. Joe made note of this, as it was an unusual circumstance. Nearly all the streams, when not flooded, were green in color. He remembered that during his wanderings with Wetzel, they had found one stream of this brown, copper-colored water. The lad knew he must take a roundabout way to the village, so that he might avoid Indian runners or scouts, and he hoped this stream would prove to be the one he had once camped upon. As they were riding toward a gentle swell or knoll, covered with trees and shrubbery, Whispering Winds felt something warm on her hand, and looking, was horrified to find it covered with blood. Joe's wound had opened. She told him they must dismount here and remain until he was stronger. The invalid himself thought this conclusion was wise. They would be practically safe now, since they must be out of the Indian path, and many miles from the encampment. Accordingly, he got off the horse and sat down on a log, while Whispering Winds searched for a suitable place in which to erect a temporary shelter. Joe's wandering gaze was arrested by a tree with a huge knotty formation near the ground. It was like many trees, but this peculiarity was not what struck Joe. He had seen it before. He never forgot anything in the woods that once attracted his attention. He looked around on all sides. Just behind him was an opening in the clump of trees. Within this was a perpendicular stone covered with moss and lichens. Above it, a beech tree spread long, graceful branches. He thrilled with the remembrance these familiar marks brought. This was Beautiful Spring, the place where Wetzel rescued Nell, where he had killed the Indians in that night attack he would never forget. End of chapter 18 of The Spirit of the Border by Zane Gray Recording by Leonard Wilson of Springfield, Ohio